The doctrine to think about is the doctrine of man's total depravity. What do we mean by this? Man's total depravity teaches that sin has affected every faculty of our being. We are not as sinful as we could be, but all that we are has been affected by sin. Our minds and bodies, our desires and impulses, our present and future, all affected by the reality of sin. We have been thoroughly corrupted. There is a fractured state within us, which means we are, we are sinners, and that is why we sin. Something has gone wrong within us. In his book, Knowing Sin, theologian Mark Jones writes that as poison mixed in water affects every drop, all parts of the soul are affected by sin. That's a helpful image, isn't it? As poison mixed in water affects every drop, all parts of the soul are affected by sin. This is the Bible's teaching about our sinful condition, our depravity. The doctrine of total depravity is one of the easiest teachings to demonstrate in a Genesis 3 world. We need only look around. We need only read reports daily, and not only daily, but even hour by hour. No matter where we gather with others, there we find a gathering of sinners. No matter where you are as an individual, there you will find a sinner because you are with yourself. There is wickedness in every neighborhood, in every district, in every city, in every state. And the problem is a personal one, not merely an external one. You cannot live on this earth without the effects of sin taking a toll on mind and body. When you see cultural madness and social deviancy, you are seeing the outworking of sin. When you see government corruption or political scandal, you are seeing the outworking of sin. Truly, the doctrine of total depravity can be one of the easiest teachings of the Bible to demonstrate for those reasons. And the Apostle Paul writes about this in the letter to the Romans. In the opening chapter, he proclaims his gospel to Jew and Gentile. And he says why there is such a universal proclamation of the remedy of the cross. Because there is a universal condition of sin for Jew and Gentile. In Romans 1, Paul says the knowledge of God has been suppressed by image bearers so that they can plunge headlong in their rebellion. So that they can rebel against righteousness in their commitment to idolatry and immorality and all the various sins connected to those things. In Romans 1.22, the Apostle Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And their heart's worship was given to those things that were not God. So idolatry dishonors God. It also demeans our humanity because we were not made to worship images of gold and stone and wood or even the one we find in the mirror. We were made to exalt above all things the true and living God, made to know him and love him. And that is the design of God for our humanity. So we look at the tragedy of idolatry and the condition of our depravity and we recognize that the outworking of sin 
is both God-dishonoring and self-destructive. Foolishness is an anti-God way of life. Foolishness is a self-destructive way of life. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Because God is worthy of all glory and blessing and honor. And we have been made by God to be creatures giving to God glory and honor. With our hearts delight in Him. Paul writes in Romans 1. What is in effect an indictment. An indictment of our human rebellion against our benevolent and gracious creator. Psalm 14 is the Romans 1 of the Old Testament. As we study Psalm 14 today, we will be confronted with some of the most important truths that Christianity teaches. The Bible is telling us about our condition apart from Christ. Well, we must know this. That the glory of the cross and the power unto salvation would humble us, fill us with awe and joy, and cause our hearts to flee to Christ. The hymn writer of It Is Well writes in one of the stanzas that though Satan should buffet and though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Jesus didn't come because we were doing pretty well and we might not make it to the finish line though. So he comes alongside us and says, put your arm around me. Together, we're going to make it. No, we have, we are off in the ditch. We're not even on the track anymore. And the finish line is ahead and we can't move a spiritual muscle and he sees our helpless estate and hath regard for us, the hymn writer says. He hath regarded my helpless estate. And in Psalm 14, we shall think about the spiritual darkness upon which the Lord has shown the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a psalm of David to the choir master. We've seen a host of Davidic psalms in book one so far with more to come. David writes, and not just for himself, but to the choir master. That's language that suggests others would join in to know and memorize and recite this song in the gathering. Because Psalm 14 is telling us something true, not just about one particular person who is a sinner. Though this would have been true for David apart from the gracious work of God on him. It is something David writes... To speak of truths that are broad throughout the earth of the nations. This is our condition. And in verse 1, we notice the words and actions of the fool. We're told who's talking in verse 1 that David is summarizing. He is telling us what a fool deliberates in the heart. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. David here is giving us the words and actions of the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. An incredible proclamation of denial. There is no God. And for David and the other readers of the Psalms who gather with the people of God and reflect on the word of God and the authority of God, the denial of God 
is at the same time an exaltation of the self as the moral authority and independent judge and the one who is the decider of these things. By the rejection of God, what fills the gap is whatever the self most exalts and greatly desires. For the fool to reject God is to therefore reject wisdom and righteousness from God, the authority of God in His Word, and therefore to pursue a path through those decisions and desires that is an anti-God way of life. Truly in the ancient world, there were a multitude of idols and gods of the nations that were worshipped. So to say there is no God means the fool lives in rebellion against Yahweh. It may mean, however, there are other acts of worship and polytheistic practices that it would certainly characterize the context of the psalmist. But the fool lives against the true and living God. In effect saying, there is no God. Yahweh has no authority over me. This is the reasoning of the fool. Where does this reasoning take place? The fool says it in his heart. That is where all allegiance arises from anyway. And here the fool's heart is against the Lord. No matter what he might fool others with outwardly, what he might project and pretend, inwardly there is a conviction, a deliberation that results in this outcome. A rebellion on the inside. The fool's heart is against the Lord and therefore with such an anti-God way of believing and thinking, that orientation leads somewhere. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Line two is the result of line one. (laughs) Do you see Line one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So therefore, when the fool is making decisions and the fool is living out the desires and ambitions in this life under the sun, what is the result? Well, the denial of God certainly does not mitigate against the reality and objective effects of sin that nonetheless take their toll. So therefore, corruption, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The fool singular in line one becomes the group of fools who adopt that heart mindset in the line two. They, those who think like this, what is true of them? Well, they are corrupted. The word corrupt there is a a, a description of ruin. Ruin. You, you experience this anytime you, you buy a new garment and then you're eating something in a way that works out to where I have a stain on it or some terrible thing took place and somebody spilled something on it that wasn't even my fault, but all of a sudden I have this, this garment that could be ruined. There, there is this condition it had been in and now it is in this state. They are corrupt. There is a ruin that has come upon them spiritually, morally, ethically. Their ability to make decisions and think well about the world is tremendously inhibited by their sin and folly. Folly inhibits us from loving God. Folly inhibits us from loving neighbor. That means if we have been made by God to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves, sin is the obstacle to doing those things well. Instead, you have corruption and abominable deeds. That's a strong description. What kind of deeds? Abominable deeds. 
which is a description of something outrageous and outlandish. When people reject the Lord in their heart and they live out what they want in rebellion against righteousness, they can justify in their minds the most egregious things, abominable deeds, it says here. When, when the fool is working out their desires and actions, the evaluation in verse 1 about the words and actions of the fool is that there is none who does good. This is a, this is a, a statement about what would be honoring God and blessing neighbor to the glory of God. That doesn't mean someone who doesn't know the Lord can't show, uh, meet someone's need or perform this particular act that would seem in one sense good. We would all recognize horizontally from person to person, those kinds of things can happen. We're talking here about the kind of good that honors the Lord and comes from a heart pursuing love of neighbor out of love for God. The corruption of our sinful state and the commitment to abominable deeds means these people are not doing good. What are they doing? Wickedness. What they do is for their own selfish gain, no matter who it affects. Neighbor is not someone to be loved, but someone to be used, exploited, taken advantage of. So the corruption and the abominable deeds includes that. These people become not doers of good, but doers of evil. Corruption, abomination, commitment to evil. This is what the fool says in his heart. But you you should wonder to yourself, but what would the wise say in their heart? If this is what the fool says, what is it that the wise say? And I would suggest to you it's something like this. There is a God who created me to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. That is the kind of uh, answer borrowed from the Westminster Catechism. And it answers that question, what is the chief end of man? So if the fool says in his heart, there is no God, what should we say in our heart to not have the mind of the fool? We should say there is a God. Who has created me to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That is what we know as the wise, trusting the Lord, learning his word. That should be our heart's deliberation. And that works itself out in life as well. The diagnosis of our sinful condition is grim. If you look in verses 2 to 4, the diagnosis of our sinful condition is laid out in these three verses. In the Lord's Viewpoint, we could call it, is what is uh, spoken about. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Verses 2 to 4 is the spiritual dilemma that God himself has objectively verified. This is not a, a, the result of a poll that was taken in the ancient Near East. This rather is David saying, the Lord sees that this is the case. He looks down from heaven on the children of man. The children of Adam, you could translate it. So the sons, the children, the sons and daughters of Adam, what is our condition? Well, the Lord sees if there are any who would understand who seek after God. Understanding and seeking after God go together. There are all kinds of things you can learn in this life under the sun and not be a believer. Things that you can memorize and skills that you can cultivate. That's not the understanding we have in mind at all. This is a spiritual understanding. 
Because it's qualified with a seeking after God phrase, isn't it? Let's see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Meaning that they should understand that they ought to seek after God. That there is a God indeed to be sought. A God to be worshipped and loved. A God to be followed and obeyed. Let's see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. It is possible that people could look around the world at all the various efforts of idol making and religious worship and worldviews. And you you might hear someone look around at the, the state of religious practices and say, well, look how many people are seeking after God. I mean, it looks like people are seeking after God all over the place. They're seeking after God in this religion. They're seeking after God with this idol. This worship ritual and ceremony is them seeking after God. Look at how they are just seeking him. But Romans chapter 1, in Paul's evaluation of the efforts of the nations in their idol making and idol seeking, Paul does not believe that this leads to spiritual understanding and light, but rather are demonstrations of darkness, and that this is the proof that they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things not God. So I would suggest we think of it this way. That all the various religions around the world and all the different efforts of worship are not proof that people are seeking God, but proof they're rebelling against Him. Not, look how many people seek after God, but rather look how many people are seeking what is not God, means God has not sanctioned, toward an end that is abominable and dishonoring to God. False worship doesn't glorify God. The religions of the world and all the particular ceremonial and ritual activities upon idols and throughout the different religions in these countries, this is not evidence of people seeking God, but people rebelling against Him. The Lord looks down from heaven. It might remind you of Genesis chapter 11 where people had gathered at the Tower of Babel not long after the fall. And you have, uh, well, generations after the fall. They're gathering at the Tower of Babel In order to make a name for themselves. And it says the Lord came down to look at their efforts. It it has that picture of the the feeble actions of man. Before the all seeing eye of God. And the God of heaven. Here in chapter 14 too. Sees their actions. And there is widespread spiritual deficiency. A lack of proper knowledge of God. A suppression of the knowledge of God. Rather than a seeking after God. It's a rebellion against God. Verse 3 tells us that's what this is. They have all turned aside. If you were on a path heading a particular direction, you wanted this destination, this was the path that took you there, and you turned aside from that path, that's going to be a problem. Uh, Especially if you got people going with you. That's an issue if this is the path going there and you have turned aside from it. Turned aside is an image of deviating from the right way. When the fool deliberates in their heart, there is no God, and living in an anti-God way from the inside out, they live turned aside from a path of wisdom and righteousness. There's something very proverbial about this. If you look in the book of Proverbs... Two ways, wise and fool, the way of righteousness and the way of folly. These have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Emphasizing again the language of verse 1, that they are corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. To say they're not doers of good 
It's a negative way, no one does good, of saying they are doing evil. That's what they're committed to. In their heart, they're not committed to loving God and neighbor. Rather, self and the idol of the age has consumed them, hardened them. They have turned aside from what would be right. Their corruption is thorough, and they are committed not to what is good. They are doers of wickedness. This language has reminded Old Testament interpreters of Genesis chapter 6. Before the Lord poured out the judgment of the flood, there was this description of the state of mankind in Genesis 6. And it it seems to resonate with, with Psalm 14 of the thorough corruption. Listen to Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This was the description of the state of man. There's something like Genesis 6 that seems to stand in the background of Psalm 14. In Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3, there is this thorough corruption. Paul recognizes this. The Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 14. And I want to read you the quote. It's in Romans 3. And in Romans 3, he is saying to his readers... That Jew and Gentile are bound up under sin. What does Paul reach to for Old Testament evidence that this is the case? Paul is going to argue that mankind, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, are bound up under sin. And so he quotes from Psalm 14. Romans 3.9, none is righteous, no, not even one. None understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3 verses 10 through 12 is rooted in what Paul knows from the scripture. So how does Paul come to conclude what he does about the spiritual state of things? He doesn't take his cue from the culture or what modern psychology says is true for the hearts of people who are human beings. Paul believes what the Bible teaches. Why does Paul know what he does in Romans 3? Because he believes what Psalm 14 tells us about our human need. That like Psalm 8, we have been created above the the, uh, uh, animals and a little below the heavenly beings. And we are crowned with glory and honor as God's image bearers. There is a dignity that we have been endowed with as God's created image bearers. But there has been the result of sin, a corruption Thoroughly affecting every faculty of our being such that we are those in a helpless estate. We have turned aside. And rather than being committed to good, there is a commitment to evil. That is how widespread it is. Chapter 14 in our psalm today continues in verse 4, which concludes the spiritual diagnosis. It's a question. Have they, these rebels, have they no knowledge? And he must mean here again spiritual knowledge. Knowledge here is probably the same idea in verse 2 of understanding. Are there any who understand? Are there any who have knowledge? Here we mean knowledge of God. He's talking here about these evildoers, he says. All these evildoers in verse 4 who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There is a hostility of evildoers toward the people of God. Do you see that implied there in verse 4? And more than just implied. Evildoers eating up my people. Envisioning here, I think, 
the common conflict from Genesis 3 forward between the seed of the woman, those who follow Yahweh, those who worship God from their heart, and the seed of the serpent, whose allegiance is to wickedness, who are animated by the evil one himself, and whose hearts do not seek to glorify God. They are those eating up my people as they eat bread. I think the imagery here is they eat up my people as if they, the evildoers, are just taking in a meal. Picturing the evildoers eating bread, that becomes a metaphor for consuming neighbor. These evildoers eat up my people as they eat bread. So I don't think it's saying that the people of God are eating bread and then someone comes in to eat them up. They were coming to eat me up while I was eating bread. That's not the point. Rather, eating up the people, it's like a meal to the wicked. They're consuming those who are vulnerable. They're consuming those that they can exploit. It's a picture of consumption. The righteous are like bread to be eaten by the evildoers. Have they no knowledge? Clearly, their knowledge of God is woefully deficient if this is the way they act toward their fellow image bearers. If the wicked have designs toward their neighbor that involve destruction and they carry those out, these are not people who fear the Lord. These are people living in an anti-God way of life and it results in an anti-neighbor way of life. You know what produces love for neighbor? Knowledge of God. Because these, in Psalm 14.4, lack a proper knowledge of God. And one of the effects of that spiritually is on a horizontal level. And their actions and thoughts toward neighbor are horrific. This conflict between the seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. Evildoers eating up my people as they eat bread. Friend, if you want to know what it means to love your neighbor well, then seek to glorify God with all your heart. Meditate on the Word of God and delight on the Word of God with all your heart. Because to know the Word of God and to walk with the true and living God will have an effect on our hearts and minds toward others. But in rebellion against God, when our lives are oriented to what dishonors God, our actions toward neighbor, how could they not be affected? Have they no knowledge, these evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? What else characterizes them at the end of that question? They eat up my people and they do not call upon the Lord. The end of this question also reminds us of Romans 1. They didn't glorify God nor give thanks to Him as God. But in their thinking they became futile and it became darkened. And they exchanged the glory of God and the truth of God for a lie. Calling upon the Lord is an image of looking to God as our refuge and hope. Calling upon God in prayer. Calling upon God in praise and lament. It means turning to God from the heart. What do these people not do? They are not those who turn to God from the heart. God isn't their refuge. They're living an anti-God way of life and therefore an anti-neighbor way of life. What characterizes them? is a spiritual disjointedness from the inside. They don't worship God. They don't pray to God. They don't call out to God. They're in rebellion against God. Why would they call upon Him? They want nothing to do with Him. So indeed, Paul sees the truth of, of Psalm 14 and how it applies to his gospel audiences wherever he travels. 
The book of Acts gives us so many different travels of the Apostle Paul. And in Romans 3, he explains why the burden on his heart is to tell the gospel to Jew and Gentile and male and female and young and old. Because the human condition is we are not those glorifying God, but are corrupted by our sin and the gospel proclaims a savior. The things we're meditating about this morning couldn't be more culturally unpopular in 2023, I'm telling you. And it's not because we're trying to paint a grim view of our human condition when all of the scriptures taken together show the dominion and glory and doubt upon those created on the sixth day as God's image bearers. But what we hold in tension is the dignity and glory of what it means to be an image bearer of God alongside the also needful truth that we have become corrupted by sin and have turned away from the path of righteousness. And that creates the human dilemma in that tension point that the Bible addresses with the Savior. That we are restored as what it, for what it means to be faithful image bearers of God. That we will exercise true dominion and faithful worship unto God as those redeemed by the Lord Jesus. We must, however, have the helpless estate of our souls clear in order for the gospel to have any compelling influence on our minds and hearts and our evangelism. If we share the cross, for instance, and we explain that Jesus dies upon the cross and rises from the dead, and these who hear the gospel message have no sense of their own helpless estate, then the wonder and glory of the cross will not strike them as it should. And the power of the gospel will not land on them as it ought because they have not meditated upon their helpless condition apart from Christ. But we're not interested on what is popular or unpopular culturally throughout the history of the church. We simply want to be found faithful. We want to teach the doctrines that Scripture teaches. We want to proclaim the gospel the Scripture upholds. And the gospel unashamedly says that the Savior has come to those who cannot help themselves. We are those who are spiritually in need. The Charles Spurgeon quote that I love to share with you from time to time. Charles Spurgeon says, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. We indeed proclaim the great need we have. So that we might further exalt the supremacy of Jesus. This is not because we want to be uh, self-condemning. This isn't because we want to be uh, demeaning in uh, some sort of a morbid way. It's because we want to say what the Bible says of our spiritual need. So that we can tell and shout to the nations that a Savior has been promised and has come. And that His name is Jesus. In verses 5-7, through we see the refuge for the righteous. The wicked are spoken about first in verse 5. And then the generation of the righteous at the end of the verse. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Something has shifted earlier in the passage in Psalm 14. These are people who aren't calling upon the Lord. These are people who are rebelling against the Lord. And now in verse 5, the wicked are pictured as those in great terror. Interpreters offer various ways to see this, what seems like a sudden Hard experience of terror before God. Why are, they in, why are they in great terror? And now explained by God is with the generation of the righteous. I incline toward the view 
that here is a picture of the wicked on the day of judgment, where the holy God from whom they have rebelled, they now are brought to stand before, and they find that they have been against the Lord, and that the Lord is not only against them, those the wicked has preyed upon, the righteous, the people of God, God is with that generation, the generation of the righteous. There they are in great terror. The wicked may strut in the present, but they will not strut on the day of judgment. They may walk in a manner of spiritual casualness, giving no thought to God, and that will be their life now. It will not be that way on the day of judgment. It is spoken of here as the wicked being surpassed inwardly with great terror. It's not like they're mildly startled. The great terror here speaks of a kind of alarm that would be fitting for one who has lived in absolute rebellion and defiance against the holy God and now have been brought to a day of judgment. Great terror. They are in great terror. Why would it only be the wicked? For God is with the generation of the righteous. The righteous are not those who will face the terror of God's wrath. We say... To the nations that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. We believe the gospel and we are not condemned. We do not fear condemnation. We fear the Lord. We love Him. Our hearts are for Him. And we learn here that He is with and for us. God is with the generation of the righteous. And therefore the wicked should tremble as the seed of the serpent. Seeking to align themselves against the people of God. They're aligning themselves against those with whom God is. God is with the generation of the righteous. In verse 6, the wicked here address with the you. You would shame the plans of the poor, David might say to the wicked. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. What's in view here are the poor who are righteous, who call upon God in their very difficult distress. And they've probably been the victim of various plots of the powerful and those who are wicked in authority and who have taken advantage of them and exploited them. Who have looked at their weak and vulnerable situations and preyed upon them like predators? The poor would have plans. The poor's plans would include getting their daily bread, the plans of gathering income for the days ahead, trying to provide for those they're responsible for. The poor would have these plans. And he says to the wicked, You would shame the plans of the poor. Whatever good they would intend, your wickedness is triumphing over them. But here's what I want you to know, wicked. The Lord is the refuge of the righteous. The Lord is the refuge of the righteous. The righteous are not as vulnerable as the wicked think. The righteous have God as their defender and shield who will raise them from death and glorify them. And that the glorification of the righteous and the everlasting dwelling of the righteous with God is the future of the people of God. The wicked think they are so mighty, but God is the refuge of the righteous. And therefore the righteous persevere and are preserved. David cries out in verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. This is a closing request. May salvation appear. That's what the psalmist longs for. Salvation. That's just a beautiful word, isn't it? It's one of my favorite words in the Bible. The word salvation. Oh, that salvation would come, David prays. This closing prayer says that salvation would be for Israel and out of Zion. Israel experiencing salvation would be exactly what the prophets long for. 
that the people who have the faith of Abraham would experience the deliverance by Abraham's future son. That the one who would be a true and greater Isaac and a true and greater David would come to bring deliverance for the people of God. The people of God who have the faith of Abraham will be delivered by his greater son, the Lord Jesus. In the first century Roman Empire, did not salvation come for Israel? Did Jesus not come, in fact, teaching in the promised land to Jews and to Gentiles? Did he not come to call those who were sheep of the house of Israel and of the Gentiles and the nations? Indeed, salvation came for Israel. David said, oh, that salvation would come because he knows the promises of God. We say salvation did come because we know the new covenant work of Jesus. Oh, that salvation would come. And out of Zion, no less. Zion is an Old Testament word associated with Jerusalem. Well, indeed, Jesus rides to Jerusalem that he might fulfill his earthly mission and die outside the city gates. Indeed, salvation has come. And out of Zion, indeed, the Lord Jesus has come. Whose very name is the name salvation. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come. Oh, so here's how the Lord answers that prayer. He gives us the Messiah whose name means salvation. Oh, that salvation would come. And indeed it has. And his name is Jesus. Blessing has come. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, that would look like salvation. The restoration promised here and hoped for here would be completed by the work of the Messiah who would bring in righteousness and atonement for sin and whose second coming would make all things right. Oh, when the Lord, oh, that salvation would come and when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Oh, for those who know what time it is on the redemptive historical timeline, for those who know what God has done in Christ, joy, delight, rejoicing, these are the words of the hour, aren't they? Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. The word Jacob here is reminding us of that name of the patriarch. But he was renamed Israel and Jacob had 12 sons who led the tribes of the Israelites. So Jacob rejoicing and Israel being glad is about the same thing. Let the people of God rejoice when the Lord acts to bring restoration. And I want to declare to you this morning that Jesus has come bringing salvation and restoration to sinners. So let us rejoice. Behold Christ, the one whose name is salvation. Jesus would never say what verse 1 says. There is no God. Jesus is no fool. In his heart, Jesus knows and says and does what is perfectly wise. He is not corrupt like the rest of sinners for whom he has come. There is no corruption in Christ. He does no abominable deeds. He's not a doer of wickedness. While everyone else might say there is none who does good, then we see Jesus who only does what is good. He never turns aside from a way of life and righteousness. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life. He seeks the Father, loves and knows the Word of God, and in all of His words and deeds, fulfills the law in our stead. The reason we need to know about our helpless estate is because Christ has come to the spiritually helpless. And we can glorify Christ and turn to Him as our refuge from our hearts, knowing that left to ourselves, we deserve judgment. In all of our corruption, in all of our wickedness, in our hearts and deeds, we are those who could never deliver ourselves by any merit we could offer. 
So God has sent forth his beloved son. Let us look to Jesus. Let us call upon his name. Let us turn from sin and folly and rebellion. Walk in a way that pleases the Lord. Disciples following Jesus. Seeking to grow in knowledge of God. Seeking to be those who understand and do not turn aside. But rather by the word of God are guided on a path of life. Because we are following the one who is the truth and the life. We are those who want to look to Jesus. Salvation has come out of Zion. And he's died on a cross. And he's risen from the dead. And he reigns with all authority in heaven and earth. Let's pray.